7 o'clock with Chris here. We're going through the book of Mark. Yeah. And then also Tuesday at 5 o'clock, because I don't like to be up as late as Chris, I'm doing the exact same Bible study also right down here. Awesome. Tonight, you may have noticed, it is December. I feel like I have to tell you because it's 60-something degrees outside, and it sure doesn't seem like December. But I promise you, it is. I need to know how long I'm speaking for. Okay. Awesome. It is December, and that means Christmas. So I am half obligated, maybe even three quarters, to preach a Christmas message tonight, which I'm going to do. And it's actually kind of nice because Jesus was a whole lot of things, wasn't he? I mean, talking about who Jesus was and the birth of Jesus, there's a ton of options. But because I'm me, we're going to talk about a Christmas, we're going to talk about Jesus' kingship tonight. And we're going to talk about it mostly out of the Old Testament. I'm not sure how to manage it, but I managed to write an Old Testament sermon about Christmas. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Who's psyched about that? This is going to be cool. All right. First, let me ask you this question. Has it ever seemed weird to you? There's a, a verse in John chapter 6 in the Gospel of John, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, I believe. They want to make him king. Does anything seem strange right off the bat about that? Or how about this? When he's coming into Jerusalem, what we would call the triumphal entry, both in John and in Luke, they record the people saying that he's the king. What in the world are they doing? Maybe they haven't noticed that they can't have a king other than the puppet king, who isn't really a king, Herod, because they're completely controlled by the Romans, right? Maybe the most dominant empire ever. And they're going to say this poor guy's a king? What in the world is that? Is this just wishful thinking? I mean, really, have you ever thought about it? I think sometimes the Jews at that time get a bad rap. Like, we either think, oh, that's so cute. You know, we kind of poo-poo it that way. We think they can't really be serious. You know, they're under the control of Rome. Or we think they're just being foolish. <laughs> or we think they're being rebellious, right? Off with Rome. You're our king. Rah. But hold that question in your mind. If you've never thought about it, I hope that I've just inspired you to think about it. What in the world are they trying to do? Talking about Jesus as a king and trying to make him king while they were under the thumb of Rome. Seems strange. We're going to get there. But first, we're going to start in Genesis. There are four major covenants in the Old Testament. I'm going to run through three of them briefly and spend some time on the last one. The first one is God's covenant with Noah. I'm tempted right now to give my whole Old Testament covenant breakdown as it relates to David. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask me about that later. But I really do think, like, critically bacon. You can check it out. It's where it all fell apart. Not really, but it is kind of cool. Okay. First covenant ever recorded. You can read about it in Genesis 8, 20, and also 9, 17. I'm oh, sorry, 8, 22, 9, 17. God causes a horrible flood, right? Due to the evil of man, he says, the thoughts of evil of man is nothing but evil continually. Send the flood, he gave him plenty of warning, judges the world, and that makes a covenant with Noah. And the essential part of this covenant that we need to grasp tonight is that God says, okay guys, you're still blessed, I'm going to keep this whole earth thing going. You know, don't worry about me coming down 
and destroying the whole thing with a flood again. All right? So he makes a covenant. He's like, the seasons are going to continue. You know, take a deep breath, guys. This is going to last for a while. That's the Noah, Noah covenant. Okay? The whole thing is going to continue. Along comes Abraham. God comes down and makes a promise to Abraham. He says, you, random dude. I like to call Abraham random dude. Because he might as well have been. God just chose him. And he says, you, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless your socks off. And everybody that comes in contact with you is going to be blessed. Abraham says, awesome. And so that's God's second recorded covenant. Both of those are irrevocable. God promised it. He intends to make sure it happens. Period. He makes good on his promise to Abraham. He becomes a great nation. And in order to regulate this great nation, he makes a third covenant. This is the biggie. You can read about this in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. And really, it encompasses all of the law. And this is his covenant with Moses. And he comes down and says, hey, this is how we're going to run these people. Now that I've made good on my promise and I've created a great nation, this is the stipulations for behavior. This is how I want you to act. And he really puts a lot of do's and don'ts and a lot of structure in place. And when people talk about the covenant, usually this is the one they're talking about. So Noah, the whole thing is going to continue. Abraham, he picks somebody to make a nation. Once the nation comes to pass, he says, hey, Moses, this is how we're going to regulate it. And then on top of that, we have God's covenant with, who knows? David. My mom knows. Top five to my mom. Well done. Awesome. David is sitting in his palace, and he's like, wow, I'm the king of Israel. And my palace sure is nice. And then he looks out his window, probably, and he sees that the Ark of the Covenant is still residing in this makeshift structure. And he says to himself, golly, it's probably not cool that I'm in this sweet palace and God is hanging out of the tent. I'm going to make God a house as cool or cooler than mine. I'm going to make God an awesome house that he can live in. And he talks to his right-hand man, the prophet Nathan, and Nathan says, hey, seems like a great idea. Go for it. But that night, God comes to the prophet and says, you should have prayed first. No, not really. He should have. But God changes things a little bit. And this is what God says. I'm going to jump right into it. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to start at the end of verse 11 and go through 17. Nathan has a vision. And the Lord speaks to the prophet Nathan. Again, this is the king's right-hand man. And David has already said, I want to build God a house. This is what God says to Nathan. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will... And he's talking to David through Nathan. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, when you die, man, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, David's descendants, forever. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. Everybody say forever. Forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, maybe with flogging inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you before. 
your house and your kingdom will endure forever, forever before me. Your throne will be established one more time. Forever. In the Jewish culture, if you wanted to say something emphatically, you said it twice. If you wanted to say something super, ultra emphatically, you said it three times. It says forever, three times. David's house will endure forever. His lineage, monarchs coming from his line, will endure forever and will never cease. This is an, an eternally, eternally irrevocable promise from God. God, no irrevocable promise. Abraham, irrevocable promise. Moses, another sermon for another time. David, <laughs> David, irrevocable promise. Irrevocable, okay? David is so awestruck by this that Nathan comes back and says, hey, man, spoke too soon. You can't build God a temple. But guess what? He's going to make your house endure forever. David takes a beeline straight to the temple, well, the shack, tent, where God's, you know, ark is, falls down on his face, and he's like, I'm not worthy. It was a, you know, Wayne's World moment. He's like, who am I? You're going to cause me to endure forever. So this is the crux of the message. Because God is God, and he picked David, he makes an eternally irrevocable, rock-solid promise that you, David, are going to have the king on the throne forever. This gets in to the DNA of Israel, at least the southern kingdom, because you know they have a bit of a set, and you have them split in half. And there's a, a northern kingdom, and then there's the southern kingdom where David's house reigned. That's where Jerusalem was, the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay. Now, it's interesting that a lot of people think. Merely the fact that there was a king was kind of a, you know, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, God didn't like it. You know, it was a little bit of a concession. But the fact is, God intended a divine monarch from the very beginning. Check it out. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 6, he promises Abraham this. I will make you very fruitful and I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. And in case you think that just means the kings in the line of Ishmael, you know, not chosen. He promises Sarah the same thing. Genesis 17, 16. I will bless her and will surely give her a son. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations and kings of people will come from her, from Sarah. And in Genesis 35, 11, God also promises Jacob, hey, kings are going to come from you. So this divine monarch, this promise that God is making to David, had always been on his mind from the very beginning, even before there was even such a people as Israel. God is a pretty good storyteller. He likes foreshadowing. He knows what he's doing. It's true. All right. So, Davidic kingdom. It's promised. It's eternally irrevocable. Trouble is brewing, though, because it's been driven into my brain at school that there are two dates I must remember. One is 722 B.C. Does anyone in here know, and you're forgiven if you don't, because I sure didn't before I took this class, what happened in 722 B.C.? Anybody? No? Justin? Exactly. Bam! The Assyrian kingdom <laughs> marches into the northern kingdom. Remember, they had their feud, right? And they split up, and you got a kingdom in the north, and you got a kingdom in the south. 
These people have been warned over and over again by God. Finally, the hammer drops. The Assyrians sweep in. They devastate everything. They snatch up the people. They carry them off into exile. And they are never heard from again. Completely done. And it is terrible. Okay? So, God's still good though, right? Because the Davidic line, the eternal kingdom, that's still reigning in the south. Okay? So the northern kingdom, that's too bad for them, but we still got the line of David. God is faithful. Until this other date, 586 BC, whoa, we've got real problems now. The hammer falls on the unfaithful southern kingdom. And this time it's Babylon, who has managed to beat up on Assyria. They sneak into the southern kingdom, raise everything. Everything is destroyed, carrying people up into exile. Think about that for a minute. God has been making irrevocable promises to your people. And now, they would all seem to be broken. You got no land. You're not writing your own law. You don't even have a king. But at least he seems to be keeping his word to Noah, right? It's not raining currently, thank God. <laughs> but the other three I'm not so sure about. What would this make you think of? Maybe immediately after it happens, maybe five years after, maybe ten years after. Let me read a psalm for you guys, okay? This is Psalm 89. I will sing of the Lord's great favor. With my mouth I will make the faithfulness known through all the generations. First part of the psalm talks about how great God is. Like, really, you know, kind of hits hard with God's faithfulness. Then it goes to verse 28. I will maintain my love to him forever. It's talking about David. God is saying, I'll maintain, maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line, David's line, forever. This is the author of the psalm quoting God. It's almost verbatim the covenant that God gave to David through the prophet Nathan. You said, if his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David. They're quoting God as saying this. I will not lie to David. That his line will continue. Guess how long? Forever. Forever. And his throne endures before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Then we have the turning point. Verse 38. And I am skipping around here. But... But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant, and you have defiled the crown that is in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him, and he has become the scorn of his neighbors. Understand that when he says he, he's talking about the kingdom of David. And who's doing the scorning and the grooming and the lying and the cheating? David. God. Oh. He said, he said you'd, never, you'd never leave us. And now we're completely owned by our enemies. We have nothing. What have you done? And he goes on, indeed you have turned back the edge of David's sword and have not supported him in battle. You've put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You cut short the days of his youth. You covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? 
How long? But you said you'd never leave. You said enduring kingdom. But 722 BC and 586 BC happened. We're in exile. Everything was destroyed. I don't think the author of this psalm is calling God a liar. Not really. But I think he is saying, have you left us? Have you left us? Did we mess up so bad? Did we fall from grace so hard that we literally ruined everything? Is it over? Is it all over? And so the nation of Israel lived with that tension for 70-ish years. They kind of got to go back home a little bit. They didn't get their kingdom. 70 years turned into 100, 200, 300. And they're clinging on to these words of hope that have been spoken. And they're, they're starting to pick them apart because they have two choices. They can either say, God has abandoned us or God is on his way. And for hundreds of years, they hung on to passages like this. Isaiah, the great prophet, who lived through the destruction of the northern kingdom, wrote these words, looking towards the future. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, and mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. Guess what? He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, upholding and establishing justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty, God Himself, will accomplish this. Isaiah wrote that living through the destruction of the northern kingdom. And the people found this passage and they hung on and they said, this has to mean God is on the way. For 100 years they hung on, for 200 years, for 300 years. They hung on to the words of Jeremiah who saw the destruction of the southern kingdom and saw the people carried off and people killed in the streets. This is what Jeremiah wrote. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And the image here is a, a little shoot of a tree that's alive that comes off of a stump that's been cut down. So the tree is gone. But there's a little green thing there. It's a little branch. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. For 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, almost 600 years, they are grasping at these little gems in the Old Testament to give them hope. Because has God left us? Or is God on the way? 600 years later, a teenage unwed mother gets a visit from an angel. And the angel says, you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. And when they took that baby, 600 years after they defeated the southern kingdom, they got circumcised on the eighth day, and they were met by people who were still waiting. Still waiting. Because they knew God was faithful. I don't think it's an accident that right before Matthew ascends, when Matthew records that Jesus ascends to heaven, Jesus says this right before giving a great commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Why? Because he's the one. God never forgot his people. He is the monarch promised from the line of David hundreds of years before, and God stayed true to his word. So when we look at the feeding of the 5,000 in John, and we read verse 15, which says that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself, and were tempted to say all oh, those crazy Jews. We need to remember verse 14. After the people, saw, the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. 600 years refusing to believe God has abandoned us and instead choosing to believe he still got me on the way. He still got me on the way. I think there's some lessons we need to learn from this. If I may be so bold. And you know that I will be, so I'll just say that. <laughs> there was an incredible and long-standing tension between the promises of God and current circumstances when the angel came and gave that announcement to Mary. Long-standing. When this happens to us, we can either say God has left us or God is on the way. The cry of the Jews that the king was coming is a cry of enduring faith, not foolishness or rebellion. Well, it may have had a mixture of rebellion in it. It was enduring faith. No one, however, expected a baby. No one. Nobody thought that the righteous branch of David coming to overthrow and, and conquer was going to come as, in the form of a screaming, pooping <laughs> infant. Honestly. So I want to give you guys hope today. And I want to encourage you. But I also want to remind you that we need to be ready to see God show up in the way God decides. God's provision, like his personality, is created. Trust God to fulfill what he's promised, and trust him to be faithful, but be prepared to be surprised by his goodness. Don't ever give in to the lie that he's not on the way. Thank you, guys. If you need prayer, we're going to have the prayer team right up here. If you want to talk and hang out, Feel free to do that. Oh, wait. I want to skip the most important part. I can't believe it. Everybody bow their heads, please. Father God, we love you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for being a God who is always faithful, always true to his word, and does not lie. You are not a trickster. You are not a backstabber. You are not a cheat. You are not a game player. You are people and those that seek you. You are welcoming. Your arms are open. Lord, if there's anyone in here today who's not giving their lives to you, I pray that they would take this opportunity and that they would taste and see that you're good.
that they would know you as a loving father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed.